0: taking the courageous step Mm. like running from comfort (laughs) and stepping out of your comfort zone and Mm. just going do you know what i'm going to take a chance yeah and that's all it is and i think often what we do is we think about how someone else will perceive it Mm. rather than just do it because reality is you don't know what someone else is thinking hello
1: everybody and welcome to running from comfort this is episode 20 career divorce and everything else i'm your host zach And today's show our guest is Beck Corson. She's a family lawyer and principal at MA Legal. Now you may recall episode 13 of the show where we had Rex on the podcast. Rex is the other principal at MA Legal and also Beck's husband. So, if you want to listen to Rex's success story, then go back to episode 13 and check that out. But for today, we're here to listen to Beck's story. So, we discuss Beck's journey in her career beginning at the time when she was a junior lawyer, which is currently what I'm doing. And I tell you what, being a junior lawyer, it's hard. Yeah, I don't need to complain, but you know, you're working long hours, there's so much you need to learn, and there's a lot of stress that you need to manage. So, Beck tells us about how she was able to overcome a lot of the challenges that she faces as a junior Lawyer, but then we also talk about different lessons that she learned from challenges that she faced all the way up through her career, including now as a principal, where she's still learning. Because that is the thing about life, we're always learning. As Beck is a family lawyer, she sees divorce firsthand on a daily basis. So we talk about a lot of the traps and pitfalls that lead to people having their breakdowns in relationships, and there is a lot to be learned in this conversation. And then finally, we talk about parenthood and how becoming a mother has impacted Beck's life. Being career-orientated can be difficult, but being career-orientated and then also being a mother would be its own challenge. So Beck talks about how she's able to manage her career life and her family life and always make sure that her family comes first. There is a lot to get out of this jam-packed conversation, so I hope you all enjoy and if you do, please do not forget to share this with somebody else, like or give it a rating depending on where you're listening and subscribe for future episodes.
0: Alright, well, my story, legally, is I started up at a very small practice, thinking I was going to be a criminal law barrister, eventually.
1: Isn't that what everybody wants to be to study
0: law? Pretty much. You watch too much TV and you think sex, drugs, rock and roll, and I'm off. So off I went, and I landed up in this dingy, tiny little office with files all around me. I had no idea what I was doing. And cue about six months in, five million meltdowns every single night. It was really, really tough. And at the time, I developed a methodology of just one foot in front of the other and make it to two years. And I made it to my two years and thereafter, it got a lot easier. And the key takeaway I say to every single junior lawyer is it's the moment you think you're going to break and you've been pushed too far. That is generally the moment where something clicks and you get it and you move on. And then generally you practice for another few years and suddenly it happens all over again. You feel overwhelmed. You think you're not going to cope and something clicks and you keep going
1: on and on and on.
0: It's a continuous process. It's kind of like life.
1: Mm. So a lot of things there, but just to start Mm. with, what was it that was going to make you break? Was it the hours? Was it the work you're being exposed to?
0: I think as a junior, when you finish law school, you'd know this, when you finish law school, you think you know things. And I think as humans, the hardest thing to do is you think you know something, you go into the world thinking, that's it, I've got it, I'm going to give it my all. And you get there and suddenly you realize you don't know anything. It's a combination of not knowing anything with an expectation that you're going to produce work above what you're actually capable of. You think you can do it, and then when you put pen to paper, it's not what you thought it would be. It's that combined with the hours, combined with invariably there is a process. It's almost like a hazing when you're a junior, where you get a lot of pressure on, you get the hours, you get the work thrown at you, and you just sit there and either you freeze up, which happens to 90% of juniors, is you have this moment where you're like, uh... Or you push through, and again, most push through and you just start doing it. But it's during that process where you feel like it's almost like part of you is breaking down while you're rebuilding, and it's a rebuilding process. And during that process, it's quite emotionally taxing because you've also put a lot of pressure on yourself
1: Mm. and
0: you expect yourself to do better. And then you have also got someone else's expectations on you, and the irony is the person who's hired you generally has zero expectations of you. So most of it's pressure you put on yourself. But it wears thin. I think the important thing is to make sure you've got the right support around you, which generally is in the form of mentors, family, someone there who can remind you, "Hey Zach, hey Beck, you are who you are. You can do this." Mm. I think if you don't have that, it becomes really challenging.
1: And during those Mm. early years, was there a way that you dealt with your stress in any particular manner, or?
0: Um, Yes, I used to run. I was a big runner, so I'd run or never on the road, uh, bikes on the road. I've got feelings about them, but I used to cycle on a stationary bike. I was a massive cycler and a massive runner. Um, and then then after time, when I stopped having that like, mad dash feeling to just run away, I started painting. I think it's important just to have some form of outlet that can distract you and is completely unrelated to what
1: you're doing during the day. It allows you to reset. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's very good having those hobbies. I mean, for example, mine is the gym. It's good to have somewhere we can just unload and let out that anger and anger, stress, frustration, whatever it may be. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Although currently, I really want to go to the break room. Have you heard of the break room? No, what's that? So it's a setup. I think it's in the city. It's a setup where basically they put in glassware and tumblers and all kinds of things. And you go in and you literally break it. Like with a baseball bat. That sounds like a lot of fun. I (laughs) would love to do
1: it. (laughs) So... Carrying on, so you know, because now you're in a position where you're a principal at a law firm, like what is that journey like coming, starting off as a junior and then working your way sort of to the top, I suppose you'd say? It's,
0: I think every step of the journey comes with different challenges, different rewards, and different challenges. So I think as a junior, it's really survival. Once you make it for sort of through, generally, I find the first year is the hardest. Once you make it through the first year, you're okay. During your second year, invariably, there's a mistake because you're not confident, you're comfortable, and you'll make a mistake. And that's a big learning curve because now you have to address your mistake. Mm-hmm. Once you progress through it, learning more about practice, and I encourage this with members of my team, then it becomes a case of, well, now you've got the knowledge, it's time to impart it. And you start training up others. And that's generally when you go see sort of associate to senior associate level, it becomes incumbent on you to learn to train. Mm-hmm. And that is an entirely different skill set and delegating. And then you've got to trust the people you've trained to do the work. Um, and generally speaking, law and most businesses, especially when you're a business owner, they attract the level of perfection. Mm-hmm. And it's learning to, in some regards, to let go of that or understand and appreciate that someone else's perfection is not yours. And it's the letting go process. Once you're a principal, initially it's dealing with the pressure because you feel responsible for everything. And it's also remembering that at the end of the day, your office is a collective of people. Everyone's Mm. got their own needs, their own approaches, their own skill set. And I can't remember whose quote this is, but I think it's Richard Branson who says, you hire talented people and you get out of their way. Mm. And that is the biggest challenge as you move up the ladder is then knowing, well, this is what I'm good at, and I'll do this. This is what I'm not good at, but I've now got a team member who is really good at it get the out of their way support them encourage them but other than that let them do their thing
1: okay mm. so a few things I want to take you back through there yeah. so the first one is you said it's a mistake in your second year because you start to get comfortable why is getting yeah. comfortable a mistake
0: you get complacent it's like all things in life I think so I'm a family lawyer I think that when you look at long marriages sometimes you can almost see a break where everyone's so relaxed that you don't work on it anymore. You don't work on your marriage or your relationship. Mm. Practice and business oh. and life, I think, is the same thing. You get comfortable, you know what you're doing, you fall into a pattern, you fall into a routine, and sometimes it just takes one, one slight difference. And if you don't actually appreciate that difference and address it, that's where the mistake comes in. So for juniors, it will be they'll prepare the same documents, they'll have the same conferences, or all flow beautifully but there'll be one different scenario. And because they're so used to looking straight ahead, they don't actually pick up on that. Mm. And invariably that's where something goes wrong. And I think it's when you stop paying attention and you stop working continuously on, and especially in practice, on your skill set, that's where things go wrong. And it's very similar to life. If you just sort of tunnel vision, Mm. you miss everything else that's happening on the side. A lot of my team members, I never advertise for their positions. Um, one of my style lawyers now, shout out to Marissa, what she did is I met her as a law student. She said, hi, we had a chat. She was at court. And that was the end of it. And I remember normally you meet people and you kind of, you don't forget, but you just, yeah. they don't really feature again. And about a week later, she emailed me and she's now been with us for years. And she was one of the lawyers that I am proud to take on my wing and go, boom, let's get you where you want to go. I think sometimes it's, taking the courageous step mm. like running from comfort <laughs> and stepping out of your comfort zone and mm. just going to you know what i'm going to take a chance yeah and that's all it is and i think often what we do is we think about how someone else will perceive
1: it mm. rather than
0: just do it because the reality is you don't know what someone else is thinking
1: Yeah, no, and that's what what you're saying there, you know, um, that just goes back to insecurity Mm. and fearing other people's Mm. judgment. Sometimes, you know, people, they won't take an opportunity or they won't do what they want to do because they're thinking about what everybody else thinks Mm. and not actually caring about themselves and their own happiness and their own goals.
0: Exactly. I think also what we tend to do as humans day to day is we think the worst of others in the sense of what they're thinking about us. Mm. So say you're having, the best example I've given someone is say you're having an off day, you just woke up on the wrong side of the bed and you snap at someone. You would, as a normal functional human being generally, you'd look at them and go, oh my God, they think I'm this horrible person who snaps and I'm just being mean. Whereas in reality, often what they'll be perceiving is, well, actually, so-and-so just snapped at me they must be having a bad day or is everything okay? Mm. But we assume that they dislike our personal behavior when in reality, the response that's elicited is not dislike, it's concern. Mm. So I think if we focus too much on what others are seeing, we don't look
1: at ourselves enough. That process of becoming a, a principal lawyer, you said yeah. at about the senior associate level, you start to train other people. What yeah. is it about the tra- helping to train other people that helps with your own development?
0: Well, when you train someone else, it's almost like you're solidifying what you know. That's and also what's regularly discounted is you learn a lot from those people in your team. Anyone who's in your team comes to you, and they will be working with you because they have something that, if you interview them, they have something you like or or a trade or a skill set that you don't quite have. That and also when you're in the training slash I don't like training per se. When you're mentoring someone. What happens then is they will learn to question you. And when someone questions you, it forces you to think outside of your own tunnel vision of how things should work. And they'll introduce concepts, ideas, approaches, strategies that in turn develop yours. So one of my favorite things to say to people in, in the office and in our teams is to say, well, look, what I'd like for you is to take everything I've got plus you because they will benefit from what i can offer them what they already have and in return as much as we get the benefit of someone working hard for us it also broadens my horizons i get to appreciate a cultural difference i get to appreciate a strategic difference you learn a lot from other people Mm. and i think in the first few years it's really just all about being self-centered and developing your skills but thereafter it's about broadening it you're helping someone else but simultaneously helping yourself it's like charity yeah we do it to give back to the community but there is a benefit to us too it makes us feel good to be generous it makes us feel empowered it makes us feel grateful it's a two-way street everything yeah. is yeah
1: and so i suppose also what you're kind of saying there as well is while you're teaching the other person you're learning about yourself in the process as yes. well
0: 100 percent. you're also learning how you yourself deal with different personality types so for example if you are working with someone who is very confident and you yourself were never confident, you learn about how that person interprets things and you can adopt it in your own life. If, for example, if you're an anxious personality and you're working with someone who's very laid back, you can see how they react to things. And sometimes in your personal life, you adopt that characteristic, you adopt that approach because you look and you go, well, actually, the way I've been doing it it doesn't benefit me or my family or my friends as much this is a better way of doing it let me try let me extend myself it forces you to look beyond you really Mm. and i think that's what makes practice that what makes life so rewarding is where there's more than just you in the picture
1: yeah Mm. at the end of the day that just boils back down to empathy really
0: yep exactly and i think um the world doesn't have enough empathy really Mm. these days I think, generally speaking, it's far too easy to become complacent. It's far too easy these days to just think about yourself. Mm. And I think it's a disservice to ourselves in doing that because you don't learn everything there is to know about yourself. And I think self-awareness is something we're lacking these days because we're constantly distracted. By other things, it's that whole instant gratification era yeah, these
1: yeah. days. Everybody, it's always everybody wants that quick fix. It doesn't matter yeah. what it is. There's a quick fix for everything. Yeah. And I suppose one of the hardest things is to actually discipline yourself to, I suppose, work work towards your goals, work towards your higher purpose, whatever that may be.
0: Exactly, exactly. And as much as often when you're on your own journey, you look and you go, "Okay, I've got this wonderful mentor." What mentees forget, for example, if you're approaching someone to mentor you professionally, what's often forgotten is how much benefit you have to your mentor mm. because you're offering something new and something fresh and you're challenging their own perceptions as well and you're helping them on their own journey. So, really, I think life is it's funny. Um, someone once said to me, when you pass away, People don't really remember always, oh, well, she wore this and she was always well-dressed. They remember the lives you impacted. Mm-hmm. And that's your legacy at the end of the day, is how many lives you impacted, what role you played on other people's lives. And when we think about everyone who's played a role in our journeys, you always remember the people yeah. and how they helped you and how they developed you. And I think that in practice and in life, it's really important to me to build that legacy and to look around and say well this is how i help people and this is how they help me and to have like a mutual gratitude
1: yeah yeah that's that's very very powerful i always think you know giving or helping other people is the most rewarding thing you can do in life and i you know for me at least i really believe like no matter what you're doing in life find a way you can sort of help somebody else
0: exactly exactly and even a small kindness often makes a huge difference to someone's day. My favorite thing is after a really long day, if I go grocery shopping and someone smiles at me, it's lovely, I love Mm. it. I think just small acts of kindness make a difference.
1: Interesting you say that because you know, um, something I would do is I'd make a conscious effort you know, if I was just in a good mood and I'm walking around, like I said, doing the groceries, this is the perfect yeah. example. I just have a smile on my face, and I notice when I'm walking around with a smile on my face, people people will pay attention to you. Like yeah. some some people smile back at you, some people kind of just I don't know, they just stare at you weird, like you're <laughs> you. like, why is this guy happy? Like what's going on? Life is shit. But you know,
0: uh, positivity attracts positivity. I was... genuinely believe that. So if you go out into the world with a positive outlook, yeah. it attracts positivity. It's like um. What do they say? Bad things happen in threes. My theory behind it is one bad thing happens, and that's life. Things happen. Mm-hmm. But once you get into a slump, it's very easy for a pattern to build. Mm. That being said, it's also very hard to break a pattern, but I think it's a conscious effort to do it.
1: And for somebody who's been in a few slumps of their life, I'll tell you what the easiest (laughs) thing there is to do is to pick up all of your old bad habits you thought you got rid of. Yeah. And that does not get you anywhere, I'll tell you what. No, no, it doesn't.
0: But it's human nature, we all do it. So my personal rule is I allow myself one day
1: to wallow. (laughs) One day. (laughs) One day.
0: It's a wallow day.
1: I think that's good, you know, one day to wallow.
0: Yeah, you process it, you suck, everyone hates me, life is shit, I'm over it, I can't do it anymore, you have your one day, and then you pick yourself up and you keep going Yeah, it's funny.
1: It's funny you say that. Sometimes too, like I don't get upset a lot, but sometimes yeah. when I do. I kind of almost sit there and just enjoy it for a small moment. I'm like, I like being sad. (laughs) And then it's like, okay, come on, get your shit together. Like, like slap yourself in the face. Like, come on.
0: You have to do it. You have to do it. There's a song, um, I'm Only Happy When It Rains. I can't remember. It's an old 90s thing. But I used to love that. One of the lyrics was, pour your misery on me. And I was like, you know what? (laughs) This is going to be my thing now. One day, if something truly horrendous happens, allow yourself that day to just process it because i also don't think there's any advantage in ignoring something that's gone wrong you may as well just allow yourself to experience those emotions and then just go right that's it i'm gonna keep plotting on
1: and i'll say just from personal experience i've definitely um had things bother me or stay in the back of my mind for much longer than they should because i haven't actually taken the time out to embrace the emotion and sometimes it's because like I don't know. I'm just like myself, no, I don't really think that way. And I don't <laughs> allow myself to go, look man, okay, you're human. Just deal with the fact that you have this stupid emotion and not well, that it's th- stupid, but Yeah, like, yeah i no you mean, You
0: find it I think sometimes it's frustrating when it's something that you know for you personally shouldn't warrant that response, or shouldn't elicit that response, and yet you still have it. Hence the it's one like- day while I like, yeah, like, like I say, like, I get embarrassed in my own head about it sometimes. It's just like, damn it, can I just get over it? It's human nature. I think we, we all do it. We all do it. So we all have things that, you know, rationally do not warrant as much airtime as they get. But over the years, I figure rather just let it out. Say your say, even if it's completely irrational. And then it's out there. It's done. It's off your chest, and you can you can carry on.
1: And this um, this is where I sometimes get in trouble with friends. I have a lot of friends that come to me, you know, with, for advice, or you know, they're sad and upset. And for them, I try to let them be rational, get out of their BS. But sometimes yep. I go straight to the logical solution. They're just like, "Come on, I'm trying to like cry here.
0: <laughs> just listen to me." Shout out, shout out to me, or if you're listening, that's that's, that's, that's that uh-huh. one's for you. <laughs> but
1: um. She has not listen to my podcast, yeah. Calls herself one of my oh, best Mia, friends. Oh, Mia.
0: That is <laughs> shocking.
1: So I'm going to tell her she has to listen to this one now because you've been shouted out.
0: There we go. Mia, hi. Hi. All right.
1: Anyways, um, so carrying on here. So you're a family lawyer. Yes. And I was going to touch on this later, but you did touch on this earlier on. So I want yes. to bring you back here. You have made a mention that you feel like part of the things that goes wrong in marriages these days is people get comfortable. So as a family lawyer, I'm sure you've seen plenty of divorce. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes, I have.
1: Is that what you really feel is like the main reason that a lot of marriages do break down or what are some of the things you see?
0: well, there's a range. Um, Look, I mean, you have the traditional things that result in every single love love song ever written. Um, There can be infidelity as a serious issue. There can be financial troubles as a serious issue. There are serious things that result in breakdowns of marriages. in the ones that aren't particularly acrimonious, often what would happen is it's it's a long marriage and they just drift and couples drift, and those tend to be the ones that I personally feel quite sad about when we're acting for either parties because you're looking at it and you're going, Deep down, you know these two love each other. Yeah, yeah. They're not really having a war those are sad and i think what happens is that you lose sight of what brought you together and you stop working on it and i think that as with all relationships and friendships it takes work it takes work to keep it going it takes work to keep passion alive it takes work to build on the relationship and i think as with all things if you get too comfortable and complacent It's almost as though you don't care enough to maintain it. I mean, women, we maintain our hair, we retain our males, we retain our skin, we do all this work. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes the things that are nearest and dearest to us, you neglect. Mm. It's like a garden, using metaphors today. If you don't continuously look after it invariably it falls into disrepair
1: yeah and i suppose it's very easy like you know i've, I've probably only been in like one real serious long-term relationship and I, I know it's very easy to kind of just take your foot way off the gas and then it's like you know you're kind of just both living your own lives or mm. i don't know like and it, it's easy to like stop paying attention i imagine it, it must be so hard to be in a long marriage um that's just my i don't know like i I'm 25, I'm single, I can't really speak for being married myself. <laughs> but something my sister always says, which kind of sticks yeah. with me, um, is that she says, she thinks that like the reason a lot of marriages break down is because the actual, she doesn't believe in like the emotion of love in the sense that, like yeah, there is that that does happen, but that is always going to go away. And her sort of lay opinion on yeah. this was love at the end of the day is a choice. When you marry someone, if you're going to stay with them, you choose to stay with them no matter what.
0: I agree with that, I completely agree with that. I think that you have the, I'm not the romantic in our relationship, clearly. I think that you have the initial chemistry, invariably Mm -hmm. you need your, your chemistry, the spark, and then you fall in love. And then over time that bond, it's a bond, it grows. You love them deeply, you love them more. But that initial excitement period, often it fades for a while and then it comes back and it fades, they say that when you're married for a long time, You fall in and out of love, and that's where the choice comes in. When you're in a period where obviously this person is your best friend, well, you'd hope they're your best friend. During that period, that's where the work comes in, where you go, okay, I love you. You are the world to me. Now we work on it. We build the spark We remind each other why we're in this. We're in this together. Um, And I think that that does take a lot of effort, and it's a conscious decision. And I ironically think that often when you've gone through a long relationship before, you've had one before, you tend to appreciate that a lot more. And I think family lawyers, specifically, well, at least I can speak for myself, you do tend to appreciate how easy it is for things to go pear shaped. Mm. So in a healthy relationship, I'm not talking about... There are some terrible examples of relationships that we see. But in a healthy relationship, it's very easy to see how things fall apart. And I think that's where we actually have an advantage in our relationships, where we look at it and
1: go, oh, wow, I
0: was dealing with so-and-so settlement and they told me this. You you can see it. You can see the writing on the wall yeah. when you're so, looking at it.
1: So, so it's what you're kind of saying there you get to sort of understand some of these pitfalls relationship can yeah. go in, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So you get
0: to see a lot of them, you get to see how they play out. And it's a conscious decision that you're like, I will not fall into that pitfall. I am going to work to make sure I don't. It's, um, for me, the one that's really hard to watch is where the children involved and you see how it goes wrong. And if anyone listening has children, we've all had the arguments in front of our children. We've all been upset with our partners in front of our children. It's, it's looking at the extreme end of that when people are separating. And that's a big one. It's where you look at it and you see the impact it has. It does make you a better parent at mm. the end of the day. So for example, my husband and I, we are very conscious of it. So we've, we've kind of developed a bit of a sing song routine for when, we, when we, we're having an argument. And it's literally a case of in the beginning, we used to sing to each other about how annoyed we were <laughs> just to insert a bit of humor into it. Mm. And to keep it light, and that way at least you don't end up escalating that argument, especially in front of your child. Mm, okay. granted and she'll have a very interesting fight style when she's a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's going to be funny. Yeah.
1: yeah. But um, I've mentioned, you know, being in family law, you know, you have to see a lot of these difficult breakups, and especially where there's children involved. Like, how much does the emotion that you have to deal with impact you?
0: Um... It's like doctors. I think you have to compartmentalize things. Invariably, though, in any line of work, you'll have that one customer or that one client that will have a profound impact on you. Um, invariably, I always say, and the running joke is, that I always have one that gets to me, one that I really think about, one that, you know, you go to sleep, you think about. I think, as with all things and all emotions you just you embrace it and you have to remind yourself often I often have to remind myself it's not my life I can only do the best I can do mm. but it can be it can be quite quite challenging and I think it affects all professionals in the family law sphere whether you're a counsellor a psychologist or a doctor or a barrister it does have an impact um there's a barrister we regularly use named Darren Mort out, up He's actually written a book directed at children whose parents are going through separations, which just goes to show that it impacts him too. It impacts all of us when we look at it and we go from the outside. We can see how terrible the situation is. Um, And kudos to him. He's actually giving children a voice now. Um, And it's a fantastic resource That for those clients that deeply impact me. I've started sending them Darren's book. It is a fantastic resource. It's about a little boy who sees his parents argue and both of them repartner. And essentially, it's a child's view of coming out the other end. So it describes the parents as roaring at each other like lions, and his imaginary friend comes to sort of help him through the process. And at the end, it's a, like the storm clouds lift, and mommy and daddy are finally okay, and they can sit and be friendly with one another. Mm. It's, it's a very human tale. And it's cautionary as well to to actually illustrate to parents this is how your child is seeing it. It's hard on your child, mm. um, and it's also there for children to say, "Look, you're not alone, and it will be okay." And invariably, even in the messiest of separations, in a few years, it's always okay.
1: Mm. When I was, um, you know, getting towards the end of law school, you know, doing yeah. a few internships, you know, getting to meet different people in the legal industry, the one thing that they all warned me was don't do family law really it's the the one thing that i always used to cop and you know i'm I'm just like the way they sort of describe it you know we've been through some of Mm. these things it's it's very stressful yes um it's a very emotional area of law Mm. but i don't want to focus on that at the moment what i want to ask you is, what's the most rewarding part about being a family lawyer
0: family law i will say this it does cop a lot of flack it is hands down the most rewarding area of law to work in. And I, I started up sort of trying on a couple of different hats and that's where I settled on family law. You are part of someone's journey. Yes, you see the nasty side of people, but there is absolutely nothing as rewarding as helping someone go through that process. And people are vulnerable. When they see you and they're angry, they are vulnerable. And it's very empowering to help them through the process, guide them through the process, and you you become that person's daily port of call. You speak to them every day, you are intimately involved in their lives, and you get to see them and support them develop. You know, where someone's used to being with someone and they split, it's normally the sense of hopelessness and anger. And you guide them through it, you guide them through the process, you help them get up the other side. Mm. And often I find you see people blossom afterwards because there's a reason that they went through that process in the first place. They weren't happy and they go from a place from being extremely unhappy to gaining this feeling of independence and feeling empowered and feeling in control of their lives again. Mm. And I think that something that's discounted when people talk about family law is that there's a lot of fear when you're separating. It's a huge change. It's a huge change of what you're used to. It's a change in routine But the people who separate, there's a reason for it. And when they get out the other end, you know that you had a positive influence on their lives and you've helped them move on. You've been part of the growth, you've been Mm -hmm. part of the personal story. I don't think there's any area of law that allows you to do that. It is the most emotionally satisfying area of law to work in, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, It is, I wouldn't change it for the world. It just takes a long time and I think that's where people talk about the stress and the emotion and it's tiring and stressful it is because the average file runs for at least a year. Mm. So it takes a long time to start to finish. But when you get to the end, you get to see this person who's blossomed and developed and gained a newfound sense of confidence and self-assurance.
1: And so what, and what you're saying there too, you know, you're seeing them through to a point where, you know, they're back up on their feet, they're ready to go attack life again. So do you find yourself almost like being a counsellor in this role as well?
0: Uh, look, we're not meant to be, but yes, you do find yourself in that position. You are someone's sounding board. Invariably, where you're their family lawyer, they trust you. So they will run things past you. They'll talk to you about things that are way beyond the scope of your retainer. Mm. But you do, to a degree, you, you listen to them talk about their fears, what they want from life, what they're aiming for, and you support them in that. Um, it's often tricky because you've got to walk a bit of a tightrope. It's not for us to really cross that line. But yeah, it's, it's it's a sh- I'd say not strange is not the right rela- sort of word for it, but it's a very different type of relationship. It's a very intense relationship that you have with these people. Mm. And I think from that, that's what gives you that feeling of reward and that feeling of being part of someone's journey is you you really do guide them through the process, especially when someone's lost. Mm. And then towards the end, they find themselves, they find confidence, they find a new purpose
1: mm. for their lives. So when you're taking these people mm. through this journey, um, did you say that you have any insight or anything you might want to share as to what you see, you know, when you take somebody mm. who's lost, and mm. they come out the other end, like you said, with a new purpose. Is there anything in particular that you see that these people go through, like any particular traits or...? Um...
0: Um, I see a separation when you're in a family law context, a separation is, it's grieving. You go through a grieving process, there's a bit of denial. Then you process that. Then there's the grief. Then it's followed by anger. And that phase is the bit that's quite tricky to deal with because it gets directed at everyone. There's anger. And then there's this period of acceptance. And generally, that's the wallow period. And then it forces someone to look at their lives and go, well, what is it you want? And that is a question we regularly ask our clients is, well, what is it that you want from your life? Because it's all good and well, you can say, okay, I'll get you this amount of money, this amount of time with your children, but what do you want? And it's in asking that question, and we do with all our clients, that the client or the person is forced to sit back and go, well, actually, what do I want from my life? And there's no common tray in a person to decide that. Everyone's very different. But that's where often... You'll find someone sit there and go, you know what? I really wanted to pursue X, Y, and Z. And for whatever reason, I didn't. And that's what you see. That's the journey.
1: So it's like they're going back and rediscovering their purpose. Exactly. their The dreams that they left behind.
0: Exactly. Or the dreams that they sort of sidelined or the goals they sidelined. Um, or they just never actually asked a question, themselves a the question of mm. where do I want to be in five years' time?
1: Yeah. That's actually a question I kind of hate that, way do you say, you say, for five years because... I'm always kind of thinking to myself, like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I just, I just keep on doing things, and I just want to see it take me somewhere. Not anywhere particular. But. Yeah,
0: It's a very confronting question, that I think we should all ask ourselves that. It's like one, the top the interview, interview question. question.
1: <laughs> but um, what I wanted to say here is I just wanted yeah. to just interject just slightly. So you don't have to be going through a divorce settlement to ask yourself the question, what do you want? No. Not enough people ask themselves this question. have an
0: idea of what you want out of your life? write it down and slap it somewhere in front of you. My goal was always to have a family law practice, my team, by the time I was 30. I am now 32 and I managed to have, gone to a very small team, I was two members, but by that time I was 30. If you want something, you write it down, you're committed to memory, you visit it every day, you'll find that even subconsciously, every step you take is going to be towards that goal. And you can do this in any context. It works in terms of starting a family. It works in terms of work. It works in terms of fitness goals. I think that if you commit something to writing and you put it in your face every single day, you don't Mm -hmm. forget it.
1: Definitely, when I've been more committed to my goals, um, it has been when i wrote them down. I'm mm. not as disciplined in that practice at the moment, but yeah. thanks to the inspiration, I'm probably going to get back to probably writing down my goals more long term. Yeah, you and have to do it. It's, it, it's sort of very important.
0: Um, it's like when you're shredding for for someone, shredding for the wedding. You know, <laughs> you have that. You have something right there. You're <laughs> shredding for stereo. <laughs> so right there, and that's what you aim for. It keeps you accountable. And as embarrassing as it is, if it's in a place where
1: other people can see it. Mm
0: you're more likely to stick to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't go as far and you're going to become that annoying person. This is something I did for a little while and it actually did help. When I was doing the keto diet, I set myself a challenge to post my meals every day. Now, I made a separate Instagram page (laughs) just for that. You may be following it. It's Galloway's underscore take. I do use it for the podcast now. But I'll tell you what, that level of accountability really helped me. Even if nobody was liking the damn photos, just posting it there, just to make sure that I like, had something to say, like, yeah, I ate keto today, I didn't do the carbs, I can go to bed happy.
0: Exactly, it's exactly that. You need something to hold your accountable. It's all good and well that you commit yourself to a goal, but if you have those weak moments, which we all do, you need something to give you a bit of a kick up the ass.
1: Mm. And I'll just say here, as a young adult, as a 25-year-old, kind of stumbling his way through life, which, you know, we all do at this age, <laughs> accountability is the thing I struggle with the most 100 percent it's I find it so difficult to keep myself accountable at times and that's just me trying to be real with you people Mm. so I mean that's it's difficult it's a difficult game it's something I'm working on it's something we can all work on
0: I think it's a never-ending battle really it's a battle zone when you're trying to when you set yourself a goal and you're trying to achieve it Mm. it's hard I think um, bite-sized chunks that's the general gist. Bite-sized chunks. You break it down into something smaller, and you can build up to it slowly. I think sometimes if you're like, "That's it, I'm going to lose 10 kgs," yeah, too bit, Yeah, it's that's a,
1: a bit tricky. It's good to have the big goal, but like for example, I try to read more books now, mm. and like literally sometimes it just has to be as pathetic as I'll just read five minutes.
0: Yeah, that's it. Um, one of my New Year's resolutions, so I, because I read for a living, was I needed to read more. Mm. And my goal was I'd read 10 pages a day. And now I've found I'm actually reading a lot more than that, but you just have to set the goal. And then on those worst days, you're like, oh, you still just read it. And what you find is once you're actually doing it, it's easy to get into. I think it's like training. Training is a good example. It's always a pain getting yourself to the gym. Mm.
1: But once once you're in there and the
0: music's going or you've got your headphones in and you're lifting up the weights, you feel good and you keep going. I became a mother two years ago and four months, (laughs) two years and four months ago. Um, It's wonderful. Mm. It's hard, but it's, it's wonderful. It fundamentally changes you and at the same time makes no difference at all. It's the strangest thing um the best thing i was told though is that when you have a child you you love them and you keep loving them more you fall more and more in love with them and i think that's an experience that initially i thought was absolute rubbish but in reality it is life-altering
1: is this why my mom loves me so much that 25 yes. years too shout yeah, out mum! Mums, i know you're baby. listening you listen to every episode shout out
0: mums love their children there is nothing you can do that will make your mum not love you. It's um, remarkable. You get to see this human being, and my daughter Audrey, she's only two and a bit now, but I reckon I could see her personality within the first few days. they're, They're remarkable things, they're fascinating, they are their own little people. I cannot tell you, I'm a, I'm a very smitten mom.
1: <laughs> and so, what I, what I, what I did yeah. want to get on with here is yeah. how has becoming a mother affected your career? Because how, how has this impacted that? Um,
0: look, it, it's, it's tricky in the beginning because when you first have a child, obviously, you're completely well, you're just overrun with hormones and emotions and you're smitten. And then it becomes a case of well, you've got this thing, this child that's your priority in life. Career-wise, I found initially it was quite difficult diverting attention to multiple things. I think the biggest thing for me is, and this is where I think a lot of women do struggle, is where you don't have a supportive environment. So earlier today, Zach and I were talking. He remembers me bringing my daughter into the office. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't take any maternity leave per se. I came into the office and kept working through it. But... I was in the right environment. It's the joys of having our own firm is that I could pop her in a bassinet in the corner mm. and keep working through it. Whereas I think that women who don't have that advantage, it would be hard and it does force your career to take a back seat unless your partner is prepared to step up and stay home with your child initially. Um, for me, I found it was actually really advantageous to what I did day in and day out. You have more of an appreciation of what parents are going through. Mm -hmm. You have much more of an appreciation of where priorities lie. You have much more of an appreciation when someone turns to you and says, I'm building this for my children. You understand it. I think it's very easy to understand the concept when someone talks, but you you don't feel it. Whereas now you feel it. You know what they're doing. You can empathize. You can understand. And it does help you see the world differently in the sense of at the end of the day your family does come first Mm -hmm. and when you're a young professional and you just got head done and you're working sometimes you do you lose yourself and work a little bit whereas having a child forces you to reevaluate your life and Mm -hmm. go well is this what I want from life and more so is this the example I want to set for my child so I, I have a little girl obviously I'm a woman so for me I was looking at it going well conceptually, I would like my daughter to know that she can have whatever she wants to have out of life. Mm. If she's prepared to work for it, to make it work, she can have anything. And that was a really important consideration for me when I was pregnant and thinking about, well, how am I going to juggle this? And my big thing was, if a mom wants to stay at home and raise her child, it's a hard job, do it. It's your choice. Mm. If you want to go back to work, equally hard job, do it. But it's all about having the choice and I don't think I really appreciated the role that choice plays in life until I had a child.
1: Mm. So there's a, there's a lot there but um, I suppose what I want to ask is what would be like your key piece of advice to somebody who is a woman who is career focused but also wanting to become a mother do you have any sort of advice for somebody in that situation? Uh,
0: I say I learned a few lessons planning is key I was very disorganized in terms of how I was going to go about working and mumming. So if you want to maintain a career and and still be a mum, it's really get yourself in the right environment, plan for it, figure out roughly what your approach is going to be, and then also be equally flexible. Because unfortunately, when you've got a whole little human there, it's very difficult to predict how they're going to react to situations and how they're going to deal with it. I think part of it as well is that there will be a lot of compromise. There is a lot of sacrifice involved in it. You, you do lose a lot of your free time. And your focus then does at times become very much work home, work home. And that and cut the mum guilt, which is rich coming for me because I'm permanently wracked with mum guilt. Yeah. But... In order to do everything, you also have to cut yourself some slack too. And that's a hard pill to swallow. And I think it's one I've only recently sort of acknowledged as something that my life was missing, is that I wasn't taking enough time for me. Yeah, And if I'm run down,
1: everyone's run down. And just what do you you mean when you say mum guilt?
0: Mum guilt, it's the feeling of you want to be there for your child 24 hours a day. Mm. And then you've got guilt because you also... As a career woman, you want to be at work. You want to focus on your career. You want to build your legacy. And then it's your attention's permanently divided. So when you're at work, you feel guilty you're not at home. When you're at home, you feel guilty you're not at work. And I think, I don't know whether it's society or just internal pressure, it's one of those things where, yes, you can have it all, but sometimes not all at the same time. Yeah. You can't always be super mum and super lawyer or super doctor or super everything sometimes you're going to have to not be at home in order to do the best thing at work Mm. and sometimes you're not going to be at work in order to do best by your child it's it's learning to figure out what the balance is that works for you and making accommodations for it
1: Mm. and it must really be difficult especially in your position because as a lawyer you know the work never stops clients always have problems i'm sure they Hit you up with emails constantly and constantly. Yes. And if you ever need to take time off, the work's just going to be there for you when you get back.
0: It is always there, but here's a massive sell point for family law. Your clients, most of the time, are parents, so they understand. Um, when Audrey was eight weeks old, I remember sitting in a conference room and she'd woken up. I went to get her, plonked her in my client's arms, he sat there holding her, and we carried on with our meeting. It's, um, it's really you awesome. Know, it's it's good. It's sort of it was a bit of a comfort dog that that meeting. It worked well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so um, I think you know, getting going on to next. Yeah. Oh goodness, that would be, be a nice <laughs> cut. I'm trying to get any words out. <clears throat> So what I want to get into next here is, so with here at MA Legal, you've got Rex, he runs the commercial side of the firm, and you run the family law side of the firm. What is that dynamic like, and what is it like sort of running a business with your partner?
0: All right, well, in practice, the reason we've separated
1: out is because we do have very
0: different approaches, both legally and in terms of how we manage our teams and how we mentor, it's actually not that hard where you're both in different areas of law, or different aspects of any business. So I have had clients who, and this is separate to family law, who are husband-wife teams. It can work very well. It does, does rely heavily on effective communication and calm communication because in business, your life partners regularly argue about things mm. and it's learning to communicate in a way that's not adversarial, that expresses a view, and generally speaking, you come up with rules essentially, is these are the things that require us both to sign off on. These are the things that we do not interrupt each other's autonomy on. And these are the decisions that absolutely you can make, but the other person does have veto power. So provided you have very clear guidelines of how you're going to operate the business, it works beautifully. Um, The only danger is sometimes, especially when we're both going through a busy period, is that you go home and you're still talking about work. Mm. And that's a hard thing to switch off. Um, Is that a rule that you have? uh, No, we go home and talk about work all the time. Mm. Uh, We do have sort of a a flag that gets waved when it's right, I've had enough or I've had a really shockingly busy day. I just don't have capacity for it right now. Mm. And it's respecting one another enough to go, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to vent it to you today or I know you don't want to listen to this or occasionally you're like, well done, okay, you did a great job. But I didn't have a good day today. Mm. Um, It all relies very heavily on communication. Fortunately, that is a strong point in our relationship. We are able to communicate very well. That having been said, it was not all sunshine and roses in the beginning. It does take... It takes a while to fall into a rhythm and figure out what works for both of you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I can imagine. Because, I mean, I suppose just a marriage on its own or, you know, a business partnership on its own could be very, very difficult. So... You know, merging those two things. But, you know, like you said, at the end of the day, it all comes back to communication. And I suppose yes. as well as that empathy, you both understand the position that you're both in as well.
0: Exactly. And it and it's fun too. I will say this. It is fun working with your significant other. You do share in each other's wounds. You do get to see what the other person does day to day. There is a lot of pride in it. And, and there's also a lot of room to make fun of each other. So it, it's actually really fun to work with your partner. There are tricky days and it's it's the tricky days that, that happen that make it challenging, but fortunately then they're, they're not too frequent. And it's very rare that we do come into a position where we need to actually sit down and talk it out. Mm. But for the most part, I enjoy it. That haven't been said, we do also have offices in separate separate corners mm. for a reason. <laughs>
1: So there you go. All right, so I think we're about to wrap this one up here, but I've got yeah. one more question for you.
0: Is it a tricky one? It's not. Um, be, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> yep. So,
1: Beck. Yes. Your younger self is there. She's pulling her hair out because you're a junior lawyer and it's too damn stressful. You work working too many hours. What do you tell her?
0: Are we allowed to swear?
1: Yeah, I've sworn already.
0: Calm the fuck down. It will be okay. That is it. Um, My younger self would get herself worked into a tizzy over absolutely everything. I think that if you have a goal in mind and you're working towards it, cut the pressure. You're doing the work. You're taking all the necessary steps. There is no point wasting your additional time on the emotions that aren't going to help you. Mm. Um, I would literally say, calm down.
1: (laughs) calm the fuck down that's calm very the good fuck down. <laughs> and i just want to add to that quickly yeah. so is that to do with the patience thing as well it's so like once you know that the goal's there so long as you're putting the work in just understanding you'll get there one day
0: you'll get there you'll get there and i think that's part of the journey we all make mistakes we all fuck up we all get it wrong but provided you're moving in that direction even if it's a bit of a squonky line you'll get there the whole idea is you just keep moving forwards and if you put additional pressure on yourself It's not going to help you. You may as well just erase the fact that, okay, I'm struggling with this or this is a challenge. But provided you're generally moving forward, you'll get there. If you keep pushing yourself, it's going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to get it wrong. You're going to worry about other people. It all happens. It's all part of the package but as long as you've got the general direction right, you'll
1: get there. Yeah, and um, I'm at least banking on that, patience. Because like I said, <laughs> yeah. I'm all over the place. I've got my goals, I've, I'm, I take small steps towards them, so hopefully patience works, because that's you're what I'm aiming for. You're
0: doing it, you're, you're getting there. <laughs>
1: right, well, thank you so much, Beck. That was a really good interview. I think you, you had a lot really good to share there. So I hope people are paying attention, because you know there's a lot of wisdom here, a lot of good advice, and Thanks, hope Zach. you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you all for listening. I hope you all enjoyed. And congratulations, you made it all the way to the end and you are still listening. That tells me that you enjoyed today's show. So because you enjoyed today so much that you made it to the end, do me a favor and share. And if you haven't already, like it. It only takes two seconds. And finally, please subscribe for future episodes because you definitely enjoyed this one. So I'm sure you'll enjoy the rest. All right. Peace out, guys.